What's up, everybody? My name is Patrick Jones, and I am the host of the Patrick Jones Baseball Podcast. On this episode, we have Dr. Ismael Gallo. Dr. Gallo is currently a, a physical therapist, um, but he's also a former professional baseball player. And so by, by being a current PT and also a former baseball player, he's able to combine, you know, both, uh, both worlds of, of movement and, you know, on-field baseball and, and understanding skills and skill acquisition. And, he, you know, he's developed a, a movement system that allows players from the, from a young age, from high school, junior high, all the way up into college and professional baseball to be able to move better. And it's, it's simple. You don't need a, a whole lot. You really just need access to some space, a wall in the ground. And it, it allows you to, to get in certain positions, whether it be your pitching or throwing and to be able to hold those positions for the you know right amount of time to be able to be efficient and be effective on the mound in the field, we're at the plate. So really cool stuff. Appreciate Dr. Gallo for coming on the podcast. Um, if you haven't, make sure to, to subscribe and, and leave us a review too on iTunes. That would be incredible. Greatly appreciate it. And if you have any future guest recommendations, please email me, jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. Always looking for great coaches. So ladies and gentlemen, here is now Dr. Ismael Gallo. All right, we now welcome on Dr. Gallo to the podcast. Dr. Gallo, appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, super excited, Patrick. Well, I'm excited to, to have you on. Uh, for one, you know, I mean, you're a former professional baseball player. And two is, you know, you're, you're even though you played baseball at a very high level, you know, now you're on a, a different side of things. You know, you're a, a physical therapist, and we're going to talk a lot about some really cool movement um, things that you have and, and some of the research that you've done. Um, but kind of what, what made you, when you got done playing, did you immediately know that you wanted to get into studying the movement and biomechanics of, of how people move? Like, how did this all take place? Well, here's the thing is when, when I signed with the Dodgers in 1997, we weren't really discussing movement or anything like that but what we did find was back then we were seeing how people move differently right we started to look at, at players who were my size and they're hitting the ball over the, the the batter's eye so that stands out where you're going like what is this guy doing to develop this type of movement and this type of power so even in 1997 we we're already trying to figure out okay some players move better what is it and once i got done with playing my biggest thing was to get into a profession where I could start, start looking at movement. So I wanted to be a PE teacher. And then I realized that as I kept going through my education, that physical therapy was actually a growing field in the movement uh, uh, science. So that's quite, kind of what led me into physical therapy, trying to figure out, okay, what was it that, that these guys back in the day, like Adrian Beltre, right? Adrian Beltre sticks out like a sore thumb kind of, because he showed up on the scene and just took over, like in 1997, 96. Um, Alex Cora was another one. He played shortstop, and the things he could do on the field, uh, you start just to see how they move and the efficiency of their movements. Uh, you start to see how they train. Uh, and, and that was, for me, the biggest thing was, all right, let me try to really dig deep and figure out what I did on the baseball field that made me successful and then the science behind it. 
So let's talk a little bit about the the science behind it. Like what, what are some of the things that, that you've found that we're doing a, a poor job of training and developing athletes from a young age all the way up? Well, one thing was is is that, that we're doing a pretty poor job of is realizing that the body is a system. So the, the human system functions with the synergies. And what, what we're doing as far as movement is we're actually splitting up those synergies and then we're training them separately and hoping that they all come together on the baseball field. And I say this because I, always, I use we because I did that early in my career. Because it's the easiest way to learn movement is to take it all apart like a TV, right? You take it all apart and you kind of figure out what goes with what. And then eventually you're supposed to like put it back together. And, and I feel like science-wise and the way we studied it and the way we're teaching it, it's still all split apart. We're not really looking at it at the movement as a system. So how, yeah, how should be, we be going about it, looking at it as a system? Like what, what are some things that coaches uh, can start doing to, to help their athletes develop at a younger age and at a faster rate? Well, the biggest thing is you have to start looking at the systems and how they actually originated, like our, our developmental patterns, right? So when you're young, you, we all start off laying on our back. And then eventually, as time goes on, then you'll start to learn how to roll. And then as the months kind of go and go and you start to explore more movements and you start to explore these oblique patterns that we have, then you'll start to notice that we're starting to develop into sitting, crawling, walking, running, right? Right. So, so I think coaches have to look at it from that perspective. When they see a player struggling on the field, they have to automatically go, how are those developmental patterns in this player? And are we missing? Because that's the foundation for athleticism, that's the foundation for hitting. That's the foundation for being that, like low and outside fastball. If your developmental patterns of crawling, rolling, getting up from laying down all the way to standing are off, you're going to struggle with those like higher level movements, which is the skill component, right? So that's that's at a really young age, obviously. Unless I mean. Mm -hmm you know teaching kids how to roll over and, and crawl and some of these things but what about when they're older in high school right you mentioned that low and away pitch and i see that too uh for for kids in high school who just don't have the the strength to, to be able to to hold those positions all the way through the swing versus guys at the professional level they can do that um so i mean do you want those guys just like rolling over too like what are some ways to, to help with that well, the, the biggest thing for me is I developed a movement system. So I developed yeah. baseball flows. Uh, if you go to baseballflows.com, you'll learn more about it. But it's it starts with the system, but also developing those transitions from mortar pattern to mortar pattern. Another thing is, and I don't want to confuse people too much, but it's like basically we need to combine all these movements of because I studied this thing called dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. Okay. And what they work on is they work on what you just mentioned. They do a lot of rolling. They do a lot of like laying on your back, rolling to your side. And what I found with that is that that is also very limited. Because what we have to expand on is you actually have to go from rolling all the way to standing and work on the entire movement, on the entire system of how we do it. And what we found was when you do that with a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, a lot of these kids have lost those patterns. So by the time they get to high school age, uh, the movement system that, that they have is corrupt. So when you're trying to get that kid to, to reach that and have power to that low and outside pitch, uh, they're just not going to have it because that's not a movement solution. 
or a developmental pattern. They don't have the foundation to be able to hold that position and transition into it. So it, you're, you're saying essentially it's not necessarily a strength issue. It's just um, them just not, not having good movement. Yes. Or it's, is it it's both? Not them, it's them not having good movement, but also having the specific patterns that there are, that are ingrained in your body and your brain to be able to do that movement. Because a lot of people get confused that they think, oh, I'm just going to make this kid a better mover and then automatically it's going to transfer to the baseball field. But what they don't realize is that if those developmental patterns are not being built, then you're not going to be able to do much on the baseball field as far as adaptability or even uh, adjustability, sorry. So what are some simple ways um, that, that you can help with that movement and help improve that movement if you are a coach, like, is there any, just a, a couple, uh, the, the lowest hanging fruit that coaches could start implementing into their practices or workouts or anything to, to help with that? I'll be honest. I think the lowest hanging fruit is go to, go on my Twitter, go to flows doc and go to uh, uh, doc baseball flow. And then look at a lot of the movements that I put on there. That's the lowest hanging fruit. It's them starting to work on those transitions from laying down from a 90, 90, into a half kneel, into a jump. That's the lowest hanging fruit. If you really want to get to these patterns and you want to start building them, then you have to work on the pattern specifically that you developed when you were young. Gotcha. So basically it's, it's one of those things where since we're not utilizing the pattern, that's why a lot of these kids end up losing it by the time they get into high school. 100%. I think you hit the nail on the head because Movement doesn't discriminate, right? So it's one of those things that if you're not using it, you're losing it. So what we have now is we have the growth of technology. We have sedentary lifestyles. We have kids that no longer climb trees, right? So even just in a big picture wise, like socially, our movement literacy is not doing too well. So once you get a kid on the iPad at six years old and, and they're just kind of sitting in bed and, and just watching the iPad, by the time they get to high school, these patterns are pretty much gone in a lot of these kids. And the way I know it is because I've been testing these patterns with kids for over a decade. So every evaluation I get, I get them on the ground. We start doing the patterns and, and trying to figure out how they deal with these movements. And I'll tell you this, every single kid that we get in the clinic is not doing too well with them. Now, how, how big of an imp impact is it that, you know, obviously that are during that that um, age range they're going through puberty too so i mean could that be part of the reason why they're they're losing some of of that movement and mobility is because just because their body's changing you're asking some perfect questions man it's like you're putting them on a tee for me <laughs> it's it's when you go to a, to a growth spurt right uh -huh. this is like the best time to rebuild all these patterns because you're right your bones are growing faster your muscle the ratios are starting to kind of fall off. That's why a lot of these kids, when they go through like a six inch growth spurt, they look uncoordinated. They're slow. They're, they're not moving as well as they would. There's, they're striking out a lot, right? They can't throw a strike. And you know this because you see it on your end where you go like, hey, this kid was raking a year ago. And then what happened to him? But that's for me, like the perfect time to get them started on the baseball flows because we'll start to re-ingrain those patterns. We'll start to retrain them. We'll start to re-program uh, those ingrained patterns right back into the system. A, a lot of these kids, what I see is I see instant growth automatically. Like within a month, they're moving better. Within a month, they're hitting better. Within a month, they're pitching better. 
So it's it's one of those that it's it's a neurological process, right? So the neurological process happens a lot quicker than if we're just working, uh, say, with a muscle or anything like that. Okay, I gotcha. So that is a good time to obviously go through with with doing baseball flows and and you know trying to improve those patterns. You know when those growth spurts are, do occur. What about what about lifting weights? I mean, do you combine? your system with their with them already lifting weights and then they just kind of gradually work together and kind of um you know one goes with the other my, my biggest thing was when i developed the movement system was to make sure that i covered all the bases that they needed for the baseball field so we do have in the system eventually you do get to medicine ball toss you get to some kettlebell lifting so we are adding strength component to it but also i'm never going to discourage a, a player from going in the weight room and just getting like a general strength component to it, right? To getting to that baseline of strength and making sure that, that we have a combination of where we're working in different angles and different uh, places to get to that, to that component, which is the strength component, the power component. What I find is that I just want parents to understand that if you are going to do the weight room, then you have to do the baseball flows. That way your, your patterns are transferring to the baseball field. Because right now, the biggest gap that I see is that we move one way in the gym and then we move the other way in the baseball field. So on the baseball field, it's a totally be different than the gym. And what happens is now you're creating some space for bad performance. And also you're creating some space there for injuries, right? Because there's such a big gap between the movement. that That's what we find in our clinic is the kids that are training hard, building all this power and the bad patterns. And then when they get to the baseball field, they have no solution for what they have to do on there. What so what what exactly do you mean by they're moving one way in the weight room and then moving another way? And you mean just from like a rotational standpoint when they're hitting or throwing? Is that what you kind of are uh, referring to? Yes, uh, I think it's hard to explain sometimes, but the, the way we move in the weight room has is the constraints of the weight room itself. Does that make sense? Like yes. The people that came up with all the gym exercises were thinking gym. They're right. thinking gym. They're thinking like get the biceps. They call them beach muscles, right? So they're thinking that. They're not thinking baseball. They're not thinking movement. They're not thinking oblique patterns. They're not thinking everything we need to be successful on the baseball field. What I did was I took all that science that they have and brought it into the patterns now that take you into the baseball field and where you have strength and power. But a lot of people get confused because strength and power is depends on your patterns. Cause I could have strength and power in a pattern that doesn't matter. Like, a like Arnold, right? Arnold could, you're going to get him on the baseball field. He's not going to be very successful because his patterns are different, but he's so strong and big that you go like, Hey, well, how come he's not smashing balls on this side where you get a kid like Altuve who's killing it over here. And you're going like, what are those? What's the discrepancy there? Now with baseball flows, my biggest thing was like, we need to, get that gap and really tighten it up and get these kids moving like you should be moving and actually practicing movements that you need on the baseball field. How many times a week should they be doing your program? Uh, the good thing now is that, that the, the way the program is set up, they have access 24, seven, seven times, uh, seven days a week. I usually tell people every time you do like a movement practice within 15 to six, 15 minutes to six hours, you're ready to go. So if people want to do it daily, they could do it daily. If they want to take a day off and do it like every two to three days, they can. I encourage volume. So for me, it's at the end of the week, you should get a pretty good volume of movement. 
So, okay. So you said 15, between 15 minutes and six hours. Yeah. That's the science behind it. Usually it takes your body that much to kind of go back to where you're ready to do it again. Okay. Oh, so, so you're saying, do it, are you, are you referring to doing it multiple times in the day? People can, because it's, it, I mean, I think right now our routines are lasting anywhere to anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes of movement practice. Uh, so some kids will, will do it sometimes twice a day. I encourage about five to six times a week. But just for me, I just wanted to cover the, the recovery part of it, right? Because sometimes when you do like a real hard strength, you, you can't do it the next day. With coordination and movement flow, you can do it more uh, frequently. How long does it take to, to complete it, though, in, in one, one session? Oh, usually about 15, 20 minutes. So it'd be a, a good thing to do. Like, let's just say a player has practice or hitting, throwing, whatever it is. Like, this would be something that you would want them to do before this, or would you rather do them after? Well, that's another great question is we actually, our flows work for two, two ways. They work for as a primer for before practice, and then they work as a recovery, like an active recovery after practice. So what we do is we just have players do them before, which is some players will choose uh, which movements they feel prime their system a lot better. Like we do have stability and then we have flows. Sometimes players like to do the stability before practice. And then after practice, they like to flow and kind of get that recovery, get the juices flowing. And I've had players who do vice versa. They do the flow before, and then they do the stability afterwards. Either way, on my end, I feel as long as you're flowing in your movement and you're creating the right patterns, I mean, you could kind of get creative with how you do it. Um, how, how long does it normally take to start to see changes that will show up during a game? A lot of that depends on the player, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Is, is some players, it's really quick. I mean, I had a girl that, that did it, that she was my pilot, and she was at the University of Utah, and she saw changes within a week because she was getting to that inside fastball. Uh, I think she was having trouble um, clearing her hips enough to be able to get to that inside and up fastball, that high and in. Yeah. And she started to realize that as soon as she started to flow and she started to do these patterns, she's like, I could get there a lot quicker, a lot better. And interesting enough, she would send me uh, videos of her hitting a home run and and – and it's kind of interesting to see how quickly it happened with her because it's like her system was already primed to go uh, to those patterns. Now, a younger kid, I'm guessing someone who's, who's not as coordinated and kind of still needs to develop a little bit, but this could happen within a month or two months. But my program is a year-round program, so it's not one of those that you do and then you move on because what ends up happening is a lot of people think like, oh, I'll just do it for two months and then I'm done. But then as you play, as your kid gets older, as they start to grow, I'm telling you, these developmental patterns are constantly trying to get away from us. So it's always a good idea to have some type of movement practice where you're doing it year round, even in season, in the off season. This should be a year round training. It's, it's not like you don't want these patterns to get away from you. What age should they be start to to do these some of these movement patterns? I mean, just as young as possible. Well, I'll tell you this, these are natural ingrained patterns in us. So it's almost like telling a, a three-year-old, like, when should you start rolling and moving around and doing what it is you do? But for me, at least the, the youngest one we have, I think, doing them is like a nine or 10-year-old. Uh, a lot of the time, it, it's one of those where if they get any younger than that, I kind of just, I mean, it, it's tricky, right? You don't want them to, to, I want kids to learn from play. 
and to realize that like, hey, these these things are going to be playful and you're going to learn from play. And it's not something that you want to like, I don't know, you don't want to create like this. We're going to do this at six years old, at seven years old. I, I think at that point I would go like, hey, play around with them uh, and move around. But by the time they hit like nine or 10 and they're starting to get into that like pre-puberty, that's probably a real good time to start working on, on the baseball flows. Do you need anything for the program or, or is it something that you just need literally the ground and space? <laughs> you need a, uh, you need, you need the ground and the wall. And, and those wall. are the two things you need at the beginning. But obviously as the program What's, what's the wall go, for? What, what do you need the wall for? Just for medicine ball stuff? No, no, no. The wall in, in general, the way you got to start thinking is the way you use the ground is it's, it creates more stability when you get grounded. So finding like another point of stability by using the wall okay. and holding on to it when you do certain movements, it just creates a lot more stability a lot quicker in the middle of your body. So I use the wall a lot to kind of get grounded. Because as you know, Patrick, is we gotta we gotta develop this affinity for the wall or for ground, right? We gotta develop this affinity for how do I stay grounded? How do I use uh, the stability to be able to power up from it? So the wall is great for adding just another point of stability. Uh, and that's what we use it at the beginning. We, we use that a lot. But at, eventually what you will need is you'll need resistance bands, you'll need a kettlebell, and you'll need a medicine ball. But that's like months down the road after you develop the patterns to begin with. Gotcha. Okay. I know you're you're also a, a physical therapist, right, during the your, your mm -hmm. main, main job right now. And I know you work with uh, baseball players – of all ages and in your practice, seeing them, you know, during the day, what are some of the, the things that you see like injuries or, or just, is there something preventative that they could be doing on a regular basis? And, and maybe it's different for pitchers versus position players just because of the, how much throwing they do, but is there anything specific that you see routinely a lot that could be preventative? Well, my biggest thing, and I, and I, I hate to go back to the program every single time, yeah, but this is 100% why I created the baseball flows. Is I actually got tired of seeing kids that could have just been doing the flows to begin with, two three years before they saw me. Yeah, that they might have never even got to my clinic. So my biggest thing was to actually, uh, I mean, literally put myself out of a job so they don't have to come to me. So their patterns are good, so they're not getting these injuries. So the baseball flows for me were, was the biggest thing to create at that point was because that is something preventative they can do now that's within them before they get that elbow pain, before they get that shoulder pain, before they start to break down. Let's make sure these patterns and these developmental patterns are 100% good. And that's that's going to prevent a lot of injuries moving forward. What are some mechanical issues you see from pitchers that when you when you watch them on video that you're like, ah, that there that's an injury waiting to happen? Is there anything that you see when you watch a pitcher throw that from a movement standpoint, uh, you know, that, that could be more efficient and could lead to injury? Well, the biggest thing I see from pitchers and hitters is the lack of movement flow, the lack of how they transition. Like for example, we'll teach a, a pitcher or a hitter how to do a hip hinge. Yeah. And the way we teach it is we just teach the position of hinging into it and we don't teach the flow in and out of, the hip hinge. So when you hip hinge, what's more important is how you get into it and then how you transition out of it into your front side. Does that make sense? Into the yes. middle? Yep. That, that is the biggest thing that we have to teach. So for me, what I see from a lot of uh, pitchers is they're either not hip hinging 
they're just avoiding that position to begin with, or they're hip hinging and they're just kind of staying stuck in that position. And they're not, they're not losing, at that point, you're not using momentum. You're not really transferring kinetic energy. You're basically just standing still. And then from there, trying to get yourself down the, down the hill. And my biggest thing has been that is the first move into the hip hinge. I think Lance Wheeler mentions this a lot, right? He mentions a lot of the first move and how that affects the rest. Yeah, the domino I agree effect. with him. One, one, excuse me? I was just saying, like, it's kind of like the, the domino effect. Yep. And, the first, and I agree the with first him. domino. Yep. I agree with him 100%. And that's usually what I, I look at. And, and one of the first dominoes to fall is that hip hinge. But not just the hip hinge. It's the flow in and out of that pattern that is actually good, needs to be trained. And I think the baseball flows does exactly just that. Is we're training those flows into those very crucial patterns. Of how do you get into it? How do you get out of it? But what I see is sometimes I'll see a kid struggling because uh, with a hip hinge, and then I'll see an instructor literally just drop them into a hip hinge, give them a water ball, and then they're just shaking the water ball in a hip hinge. And then you go, okay, where's the flow? Where, where's, where's the flow here? Where's the transition into it? And where's the transition out of it? And it's so, not- so for people who don't, who, who, uh, who are watching or listening to this, when you say flow, what exactly do you mean flow for me is is how we transition from like how you transition from one movement pattern to the next okay so like how do i transition from my hip hinge into getting to the middle of my body into starting to rotate into my thoracic the sequencing the timing how is that flow of kinetic energy working its way up the chain and how is the flow of my patterns the patterns that i have within me flowing with the, with that kinetic energy at the same time as it works its way up the chain. Trust me, Patrick, it, it's, it's a very, for a lot of people, it's a very abstract concept. But when you look at it from a movement component, you go, let's train the patterns and the flow comes. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess when, when you said flow, we were talking about, you know, pitchers and hip hinge and, you know, getting into that position and then getting out of that position – my thought goes to uh, as a coach. Well, it's kind of like a hitter who's in their stance in the box, right? And they're and then they flow into hip hinge as they start to stride towards the pitcher, and then they swing and then eventually come out of that. Um, that that's a get. That's how I interpret flow. I mean, one hundred percent. Okay, so I, I think okay. you are one hundred percent on it. I'm just adding the science component to it. The the like. I'm just looking underneath, under the, the, the hood a little bit and trying to explain that. I want people at a certain point to realize that for me, I'm a baseball player first and a doctor second. So I don't want to confuse people with a message of like, oh, movement flow and all these big words and all these patterns and things like that. I want, I want people to know that I always see it from a baseball player component. So it's one of those where I just say, hey, go to baseball flows, train the patterns, and then let Patrick do his thing on the hitting. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing worse than listening to somebody throw out huge words and you're just sitting there like, where's my phone at? Cause I got to look up every other word <laughs> to try and figure out what he's talking about. Yeah, Patrick, I think I'll, I'll be honest with you. I get confused. I, I feel sorry for parents, coaches, and players because when I, when I see some of these posts and I hear pelvis and I hear internal rotation, I get confused. I've been working with this for over a decade and a half. 
And when I hear that, I'm, I'm figuring I'm going like internal rotate. What are we talking about? Like I'm lost at this point. When for me, it's simplification is the biggest, biggest thing we have to do as providers, right? As coaches is we need to simplify this so the player understands it. So the parent understands it. So the coach understands it. I feel like sometimes we get too caught up with big words. Uh, and I think for me, being a physical therapist, that's helped me a lot because I've been working as a physical therapist since 2010. So I'm, I'm talking to normal folks and I'm not using medical lingo and I don't, I don't have to. And we're just discussing patterns and we're discussing just real life, how, how things move and just using regular words. Guess what? Train your movement patterns. That's probably as hard as it gets for me is just look up movement patterns and, and the rest kind of kind of falls in place. What are your thoughts on young kids using weighted balls? Oh, that's a tricky one. You know, that's 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 one of those where I mean, I don't get too caught up in the politics of it. I'll be honest with you. Is is I don't get too caught up in hey, guess what? This guy teaches a weighted ball. That guy teaches it. Injury prevention. There was some research that came out that said that it was bad. Um, it was causing injuries, right? That that I think Rhino did that, some of that research. But I also see for me is I do see some benefit in, in using that as a constraint. I mean, my biggest thing has always been is vet your coach, vet your professional, know, know who you're working with, right? If someone's going to tell you to throw a weighted ball, automatically you should think, okay, how knowledgeable is this person about the weighted ball programs? How, how knowledgeable are they? Not only where did they learn about weighted balls, Secondly, where did that person that taught them about weighted balls learn their information, right? Because what we have now is we have people that are, that are, there's also a gap in knowledge, right? There's a gap in knowledge between the people who played baseball and the people that know the science. And what I find from my end is I see a, a huge gap there where you got people who know the science that don't know anything about baseball, how to throw a baseball, all of a sudden going, oh, this is how you do it. And you go like, hold on. There's a big gap there between the classroom and the baseball field. And then you got people that were on the baseball field who don't understand the science very well, who think, oh, I know the science. I know all the science. I read one study, and now I know everything about everything. I listened to Dr. Gao on a podcast once. I got it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, always, I told my brother this morning, I said, dude, you don't take a weekend course and perform heart surgery on Monday. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, you at don't. least not yet. Not anybody I, I love. Yeah. Not yet. And, and for me, the biggest thing is I'm trying to kind of really get people to go like, there's a gap here. Let me guide you through this. Let me guide you through this gap. Let me be the curator of some of this information because I've been on the baseball field for a long time. And I've been in the science and I've been in the lab and I've been treating patients and I've been working with players for a long time also. And I was able to kind of marry the baseball and the science and kind of put it together. So my biggest thing is it's, it's, I'm not too biased towards anything. I always just look at vet your coach, vet your instructor, and then vet the person that taught them. Because sometimes we get too caught up on followers and who has the most followers and, and who has the most clout. And, and then we, we put them as gurus. When in reality, you go, okay, where's your background? Where's your science background? Where did you study? Where, where did you get this knowledge from? And then where did you play too also, right? There's this, how much do you know about baseball? How much do you know about science? And we're trying to marry that um, yeah. with instructors. 
experience matters. The reps matter. You talked about, you know, heart surgery. And I mean, you, you need a lot of reps uh, to be able to, to master your craft as a coach or, or whatever, whatever it is. And, you know, I, I was, I forget where I think it was the athletic. I saw, I saw a quote anyway, you'll like this from Joe Madden that, that he talked about, you know, a watch. He's like, I don't need to know every detail on how a watch was built. I just need to know what time it was, what time it is. And it's kind of what you're referring to anyway of, you know, people who never played baseball and just, you know, on the data side and telling people who are on the field, you know, what exactly they should be doing without having any experience at all. And then the people on the baseball side be like, we just need like simple information. Like we don't need to be bombarded with every single statistic um, so it's being able to combine both of those and, and simplify it, um, is, is incredibly important. It's hard. It's a lot harder than people realize it. You know, I mean, it's just, it's hard, especially when you're in an organization, whether it be at the travel level or even a major league level, cause there's so many different moving parts, but, you know, luckily we have someone like you who can simplify it for people who are listening and I, uh, I think it's funny that, like you said, you get confused on Twitter and yet here you are as a physical therapist with like every certification in the world. And, uh, if you're getting confused and I can only imagine what someone who is not even in the baseball world as a parent, what they're thinking. Yeah, that, that's, I think for me, that's the biggest concern, right? Is because at a certain point, parents are on social media. Kids, players are on social media. Coaches are on social media. So sometimes the, the message, like my message, for example, right? Sometimes it gets drowned by all these other messages that, that are going like, I've had people on Facebook and, and on Twitter argue with me about movement. And I go, okay, like, I don't want to have, a, I want to have a discussion. I don't want to have an argument. Like, if you give me good reasoning, you give me great understanding uh, of it, then I'm listening. Because trust me, no one's too grown to grow, right? Right. So it's, it's one of those where uh, I always tell people unlearning is part of the learning process. Mm. You got to be able to, to say, guess what? I don't have all the answers, but guess what? I've experienced so much on the baseball field and I've experienced so much on the science, so much on the physical therapy side. And it's one of those where you go, I'm just combining it. This is this is what I've learned in my process and in my journey. And I feel like it's just a different perspective, Patrick. You know, this. there's not many people who have played professional baseball, who, who kind of nerded out on the science part and took it to a doctor. There's not, there's not many people that, that have done that. And no, there, and there hasn't been, I, at least I haven't talked to very many like yourself. Do you have any, uh, any, any Adrian Beltre stories you could share with the audience? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, this is, did you ever try to grab his head? No, you know what? I think he developed that like older in life maybe because okay. He was actually a quiet kid. To be honest with you, Beltre, when he first came on the scene, because I was there in, in 97, uh, when he first showed up from Dominican, he was a real quiet kid. I mean, very respectful, very quiet. I'll tell you, the first thing that I ever saw from Adrian Beltre was saw him throw a ball from third base to first base. Oh. And I was at shortstop in the instructional league. And that's like the first time in my life I thought, like, I don't belong here. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because at Adrian Beltre at third base, and then at Alex Cora taking ground balls with me in instructional league in Arizona, and Cora's just throwing bullets with like the shortest arm path you could ever think of, and he's just catching it, playing with it, 
Beltre's throwing from third, and, and I'm looking at myself going, how did I, how did I end up in this situation? Uh, and how am I going to compete? That was the biggest thing for me was, I guess at this point, is just compete. And I ended up doing well that instructional league. But I remember that was the moment where I first saw, where I was like, yeah, these guys are special, man. Yeah, well, I mean, granted, you are comparing yourself and Adrian Beltre to uh, an incredible third mm -hmm. baseman defensively. I mean, just some Hall of the Famer. Oh, Hall of Famer. Yep, Hall yeah, of Famer, 100%. 100%. Um, Dr. Gala, this has been a ton of fun. Is there anything else you would like to uh, share with the listeners? Well, I think for me, it's, it's also it's good for the listeners to know a little bit about my, my history. Okay. How did I get to the doctorate, right? How did I get to professional baseball? Because I, I feel like that story there is just very interesting, right? Is because I went from a kid who was like the worst student you could ever think of, Patrick. I was ditching. I think in, in eighth grade, I must have ditched like 40 days. Uh, ninth grade, I barely made grades to play uh, freshman baseball. And then eventually I didn't have grades, so I didn't play my sophomore year due to academic uh, problems. And then my junior year, I didn't play either. So eventually I dropped out of high school. So at 17, I was out of baseball, out of school, out of options. So I, I ended up getting my GED and, and, and luckily got into a junior college. And I met coach Art Masmanian, who's like the old school coach. You're talking about like Sparky Anderson, that type of old school. Like he played with those guys. And he, he always told me, I'm going to play the best nine guys. And it, it turns out I was one, one of them. So I ended up getting drafted that year. So I went from 17 high school dropout to 19 being drafted in the 20th round by the Dodgers, which I'm from close to L.A. So it was like my hometown team drafting you. So I, so I go and play, and then now I go through there, and you have the greats of Tommy Lasorda. You have Sandy Koufax. I mean, the Dodgers as an organization did a great job of keeping the old school players coming back and giving us like a speech. They would give us motivational speeches. So I went through five years of that. So once I once that totally changed my perspective on school, it changed my perspective on how I could be successful outside of baseball. And from there, when I got back, getting the doctor, it was almost like a cakewalk because I had such a motivation to just do something better than, than, uh, with my life than just be a high school dropout. So you just didn't like school when you were in high school? Well, here's the thing is, I don't know if I didn't like it. I don't know if I was bored or if I didn't, I don't know if my parents just didn't care for me as far as going to school. So I think it was a combination of my parents are immigrants. So their biggest thing was like, don't get arrested and get a job. So was, the, the bar was like really, really low. So as soon as I started going to school, I, I, I was not really that interested. And, and I think early on, I, I realized that it was just like, school's not for me. You know, you, you end up, putting yourself in a situation as a kid where you just start to realize like, maybe this is not for me. Maybe I'm not smart. Maybe I can't figure this out. Now looking back at it, what I realized is I didn't have a process. I didn't have belief in myself. I didn't, I didn't have that mentor that was able to tell me like, Hey, look how smart you are. Right. You can do this. I mean, like the things I do for my kids now when they're struggling with school is actually what I needed back then was someone to just take me, take me and say, guess what? I care about you. This is what you can do to be better. This is the like the roadmap to it. I didn't have that in my life. Mm. So I don't know if it was one of those things that I just didn't like it or I was just in an environment that wasn't conducive to going to school. Well, that's an interesting story, man. I mean, it's uh, 
it's it's crazy how how life works out and how you know you skip all those days of school and you don't like school and then here you are going back to school and you know have have all these certifications now and a physical therapist and you know played professional baseball um you know it's 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 really cool to see i'm really happy for you honestly uh because you're you know oh. seem like really good dude so um and and i think sharing that stories and important and, and powerful because there's mm -hmm. people out there who who are struggling too and you know it you, i think you're a testament to just because you know you you drop out of something doesn't mean that you your identity is a dropout or a quitter forever you can always pick yourself back up and and finish strong and that's you know what you've done yeah thank you yeah that's that's the perfect message to send to say that it's never too late to reinvent yourself it's never too late to believe in yourself. It's never too late to just say, hey, guess what? I'm not, I don't need to be the same person that I was yesterday. I don't, I don't need to be that person anymore. And to just make that change and take the, make that commitment and then start putting people around you that, that have the same mentality, right? Start changing your environment. You know, if you have friends that, that are not going down that road or they're, they're going down back, like right now, my friends that I hung out with back then, like I don't really talk to them as much because it's one of those where we just don't have much in common anymore. Mm. Yeah, which is, it's interesting though, because you, you end up putting yourself in a position now where you're building new friendships and you're, you're but then you are a different person. So it's, so it's one of those things that you got to understand that you got to believe in yourself. You got to change your environment. And I'm sure that's, that's what, that was tough for you, right? Because that means that at some point, you didn't have any really friends because you're changing your environment and changing who you're hanging out with. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was difficult, but luckily for me, I ran into a real good woman at 1920 when, when I signed, which is my wife now. There you go. Was, yeah. She was like my best friend, my best, everything that just guided me through this whole so your, process. Your wife of, give, gets all the credit, not you. Your wife gets all the credit. Well, you know what? Sometimes you got to, it takes a village, right? So right. there are times, trust me, this has not been like an easy road where I went from a dropout to a doctor. It wasn't easy. So you need people in your corner kind of cheering for you on days where you, there was days where I was working at a warehouse, not knowing if I was going to make it to be a doctor, not knowing, doubting myself, right? And, and when I would come home, she would say like, believe in yourself. You can do this. I'll be there for you. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that we get to that destination. And she followed me everywhere. She followed me when I was living with my parents. She followed me when I was living in a little apartment at Loma Linda through my doctorate. She has followed me through the whole step of this process. So I think you, at a certain point, you have to give credit where credit's due. And and the wife does get some credit. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Dr. Yeah. Gal, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to put, put the website and everything in the show notes. Uh, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, what, what's the best way? Well, the, the best way is through the website now that we developed the website. So www.baseballflows.com. Okay. Also on Twitter, you go to FlowsDoc. Uh, I'm, I'm more, I'm probably the most active on Twitter as far as interacting with people. Uh, but you can also find us on Instagram at uh, baseballflow uh, official, And then also on Facebook, we have a Baseball Flows page. Uh, there's plenty of ways of contacting me. Uh, I'm always up for people messaging me, asking me questions. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that if people have questions, I'll give them the simple answer and then we go from there. Awesome. Appreciate you so much for coming on. Hey, thank you, Patrick.